Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This podcast episode was recorded on Tuesday, March 22nd, and released to premium subscribers that same day. As a premium subscriber, you get this benefit as well as many others, including not having to listen to the podcast with these annoying ads or announcements. Also a daily podcast that you get every morning looking at the day's market activity and seeing where there might be opportunities for arbitrage. All of this you can sign up for at the website mentioned at the top, contrarian.supercast.tech, or visit our substack, contrarianpod.substack.com. It's the very same deal at both websites. If you already are on substack, you may want to just join that one, contrarianpod.substack.com. There are a host of other benefits as well. So check it out, contrarianpod.substack.com. Get the podcast early, get the daily podcast, and no longer have to listen to any of these ads. With that, let's move on to today's show. Here you go. Lucas Tumitsky, LRT Capital, joining us here. And we are going to talk about, we have some stock ideas that you are going to present, but we're starting with this premise of inflation and your view that this inflation is, wait for it, transitory. That's right. right. I that am, is, I, am, I thought I this was the team transitory. You're still on team transitory long after the Fed abandoned it. I mean, look, signs of inflation are everywhere. You go to the gas pump, it's $4 and change now per gallon here in the US. And food prices are up. I don't know how much. We have all kinds of stuff that is that is rising, prices rising, wages are rising. So, and the Fed has said they're 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 fighting inflation just last week, uh, Powell, or no, yesterday. Powell said that they, they may actually have to raise rates more. And so, but you think now this is just going to kind of deviate and go on its way. So tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, look, this is the contrarian podcast. So exactly. I think you have to think about what is the most contrarian position. The Fed doesn't have a crystal ball that's any better than anyone else's in reality. You know, a year ago, they were telling you they don't see any rate increases in the year ahead. Um, when, when it was becoming obvious that, you know, both the fiscal stimulus that was coming down the pipe, you know, however many rounds of that we had, and there was a talk about build back better, which Biden was trying to do another trillion plus in spending and remake America. And the Fed was buying, you know, mortgages and treasuries at a, you know, incredible rate. Back then, I think it was quite clear there was going to be some inflation, right? And, and the Fed was telling you there's no inflation. 
And now everyone's sort of gotten on this bandwagon as if inflation of six, 7% is going to persist. Um, now, I'm not claiming that suddenly the economy is going to collapse and everything is going to get cheaper like it was three or five years ago. But I'm, I'm simply suggesting that inflation may moderate to something like a 2% rate that we've seen prior to the pandemic. And if you think about the things that were driving this low inflation before the pandemic, I don't see those things as having changed uh, dramatically. Okay. So basically, it'll just be a reversion to the mean then. I mean, interest rates are, will factor into this as well, I would think, right? The yeah, again, you, you have to think about sort of the, the, the rate of change, right? Yeah. With interest rates and the amount of new money that's being created. So the Fed is, is going to start shrinking its balance sheet. Rates will go to 1.5%, maybe, maybe 2 the yield curve is already flat, you know, three years to 10 years is actually mar marginally inverted as of this morning, uh, right. which generally happens at the end of a tightening cycle. You know, what is, what is has kept, what has kept inflation low for the last two decades, right? It's been the aging population. The fact that there's actually fewer people in the workforce population growth is frankly at the lowest levels we've had in generations in the United States. Some of that with has to do with immigration. Some of that has to do with, with people delaying the having of children and, and family formation. You look at it, it, it's just hard to see why there suddenly should be sustained high, high inflation um, and, and why it doesn't come back. Commodity prices are up year over year. Again, that's showing up in inflation. As you move forward, that rate of change year over year is gonna decline. And that's gonna feed into prices somewhat, but again, it's gonna stop at some point. So the case for seven plus percent inflation persisting is very low. My, hmm. my, my thesis is we go down to two and a half, two percent towards the end of the year. And I think that that's kind of the thing that, that people are not expecting. When would you start expect to start seeing this in the data, like in the CPI or whatever? Sure. Second half of the year, you know, mm -hmm. first quarter, first quarter. So like July, uh, September, August. Uh, September, October, you know, okay. it, it should come down from the, the levels that we're at. Right. And you know, again, markets are always forward-looking. You know, Stanley mm. Drucker-Miller has this great quote about, you, you want to think about where the market will be and where the economy will be nine or 12 months out. You're not investing in, in the present. If you're, going to get, mm. if you're going to invest in the present, you're going to get run over. Mm. Um, so you want to think about wh where, where things are heading. Um, mm. And, and I, I think if you, if you play this out, you know, nine months forward, inflation moderates, then, then we can begin to talk about you know, interest rates being stable or maybe even cut at some point. Because again, the economy is unlikely to, to be very kind of robust going forward. Okay. Now let me throw a couple other things here at you. First of all, this idea that the reason we haven't had inflation until recently in the last you know, 20, 30 years is because we've been exporting it. And also now the, when we're talking about inflation, and let's talk about commodities here and, and this Russia-Ukraine crisis and what that has done with supply chains, which a lot of people are blaming on the higher prices for oil and, and a host of other commodities, uh, palladium and, and, and um, industrial metals too, as those are, and wheat and corn and, and softs, as a lot of those are produced in that region. But what do you make of that um, in, in the whole equation? Yeah, look, it, it, is, it is inflationary. I think it's going to contribute to inflation. Um, but again, you know, in the developed world, in the U.S., Western Europe, food is, you know, we're sort of at record lows in terms of how much money we spend on food. 
what 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 matters and, and certainly energy is also part of it but again dollars of gdp per unit of energy or barrels of oil consumed are at record highs so we're we don't need that much oil in the industrialized world. And that's why sorry, U.S. emissions have actually gone down over the last 20 years, right? U.S. emissions peaked like in 99, 2000 in terms of CO2 because we're getting more and more efficient. So yeah, certainly high oil prices, high commodity prices, all of that feeds into inflation. But it's, it's the question is, does that, con- you know, does, does oil keep rising 70% year over year every year? I don't, I don't think so, mm-hmm. right? It went from 40 to 100 it's going to go to maybe 120, 150. It's not going to keep going up 50% every year. That, that's, mm-hmm. that's really what this is about. Okay. And now this other idea you have, which is what you had, what we've talked about so far is certainly contrarian. And what we're about to talk about is frankly, completely insane, which is <laughs> that the Fed can engineer a soft landing here, which correct me if I'm wrong, they have never done in their entire history, 100 and whatever eight year history it is. Um, so tell me about, talk to me about that. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think the economy is going to slow down and inflation is going to come down. I think people have different opinions about what the current consensus is. You know, there, there are some people kind of coalescing around what you might call a stagflationary consensus that mm-hmm. we're going to both have high inflation and a weak economy. And again, I, I'm just not in the persistent inflationary camp and the people that are really pushing you the inflation narrative you know, they're 70% invested in mining and oil. Mm. Uh, so I think there's, there's a reason for that narrative. Um, you know, in, uh, in supply chain management, there's a well-known um, phenomenon called the bullwhip effect. And the bullwhip effect basically occurs when you have multiple layers in a supply chain, from a factory to the wholesaler, and you have lead times between those two. And there's a lack of information, right? So, so what, what happens is there's a buildup of inventory and an amplification of the changes in demand throughout the supply chain. So I'll give you an example. Uh, you're a home builder during COVID and you have some inventory of, of materials that you use to build houses. And you see COVID happens, big uncertainty. You see demand drops a bit, you know, say 5% but you have COVID and uncertainty, who knows what's gonna happen. So you you slow down construction and you order 15% less materials from your suppliers. Even though your sales are down only 5%, you you wanna be careful, you order 15% less, you're gonna let's let's run down inventories a little bit, let's be careful. Your supplier sees this and says, okay, my orders are down 15%. And they have some, materials that they use, metal or whatever they use to fabricate your widgets. And they say, well, we don't know what the demand is. Everyone's telling us COVID lockdowns, God knows what, we got to preserve liquidity. Let's slow down our orders. Let's run down inventory. Let's preserve cash. They order 25% less, right? And the guy who makes the widgets from iron ore sees 25%. And he said, well, we got to cut orders by 40% from US steel where they get their rolled steel and then so on and so forth, right? And it works both ways. So when demand comes back, suddenly home demand comes back 10, 15% and they're like, dang it, we need to you know, increase orders and our inventories are down. Let's order 25% more. And, and this, this is how, how it progresses. So you're seeing that play out in many companies in very kind of strange ways. You know, um, third quarter, 
of last year, if you look at uh, U.S. Steel, I think they reported a net income of $2 billion. And at the time, this was a company that with a $6 billion uh, enterprise value. And in one quarter, they have net income of $2 billion. Right, so some very strange things happening. Uh, and obviously, they, 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 you know, everyone ordered more calls and have call prices are up. So they're not going to make $2 billion a quarter. But there are these strange things happening. Um, lead times for orders, right, have risen tr- dramatically. So if you want to order from China, the lead time has increased. And so you had this pileup of ships on, you know, out the, outside the harbor in uh, Long Beach and, and Los Angeles. That's actually been worked down. So you've heard a lot of articles about how there's a big wait. That's actually down to normal levels now. So you probably haven't, you know, it's not sensational enough. You don't mm-hmm. hear much about it, but that's actually back to normal. So you're seeing that, that kind of ripple through different levels of companies. Um, and, and I think a big part of this, this extremely high demand that we're seeing is actually related to, to this bullwhip effect. Hmm. Okay. So basically they're the end user or not the complete end users, but the, the people who sell the producers are, were low on these raw materials and had to catch up with their orders. I guess that makes sense. Uh, Real quick, turning back to the geopolitical area though, just while we're still on the subject now, now what if this, you know, the Russia, the supply of all the stuff that they've been producing goes offline or, or just is the U S and Western countries can't import it anymore mm-hmm. and they have to find other and, and it's not just that there's there's a big move it's been going on for a while this reshoring this idea of reshoring and kind of bringing production back to the u.s um if that happens which it sounds like it is or, and it may 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 advance further then wouldn't that result in higher prices yeah so let, let's let's more persistent higher prices I yeah guess. let's get get a few things cleared out so there's a bunch of things that you mentioned there. Yeah. Russia. So I'm originally from Warsaw, Poland. So I have some strong yeah, no. views on Russia. Let's let's start with that. <laughs> right. Um, Russia is basically a gas station with nuclear weapons. Um, you know, it, it's classified as an emerging country or emerging market. It's not really it's not really emerging. It's a, it's a submerging market. Okay. If you look at the economy, they've gone backwards in the last 20 years. And I mean, in terms of what they produce, in terms of the kinds of products they make there's very little advanced machinery or advanced exports that Russia has. Their effective main export is commodities of which oil is number one, natural gas is kind of number two, and then wheat and some agricultural things. And yes, certainly palladium and nickel and and other things. Um, My short answer to all of that is we're gonna work through it. We're gonna find a way through it. the U.S. doesn't import much Russian oil. The, the EU is going to self-sanction effectively. But guess what? The Indians are going to buy it. So, you know, if two million barrels go from the, the, you know, the Western European countries instead of that India buys it, that means they're not buying it from somewhere else. It's a global market. It will kind of reshuffle itself anyway. Um, and the Indians are going to get a better deal because, you know, they're, hey, you know, Russia, you're in a tough spot. Give us a give us a better deal. And it's their position to do it. You know, there are billion plus people. They need energy. Who's going to stop them? Um, China, same thing. You know, China wants the commodities. They're going to buy them. Um, so I'm, I'm not that worried about that. Again, if you're 
in low income in rural Egypt and you depend on cheap wheat imports, this is going to be a tragedy for you. If you're in New York City and the cost of your bagel goes up 15 cents, you know, it's, it's, it's bad, but it, it's, it's less of an issue for us, um, regrettably. And there's, there's going to be other compensating effects, right? So people will plant more in other countries as well over time. Okay. Okay. Um, okay, cool. Um, there was another part of that, I, th- I think. that. I well, the, the reshoring yeah. question, right? So the reshoring yeah. question is a supply chain question. Mm-hmm. Um, and again... Everyone's trying to always figure out what the best combination of, you know, supply security and pricing and capabilities is. Mm-hmm. Um, Russia doesn't have any advanced manufacturing to speak of. So that's really not an issue. In terms of reshoring, um, you know, the move out of China of very low income or very low value added production has been going on for 10 plus years. Mm-hmm. This is not a new idea. Um, mm-hmm. Wages in, say, Vietnam are, you know, one fifth of what they are in China. Yeah, mm-hmm. to, to us, from a Western perspective, to China, Vietnam, Indonesia, these all seem like kind of poor countries. But you got to look at the numbers. You know, China's income per capita is roughly the same as Mexico's today. Vietnam is one fourth. Mm-hmm. India is one eighth, roughly. Wow. So, you know, you, you can read stories about illegal immigrants coming from Vietnam over the river to work illegally in China mm. because for, for them, it just makes sense to do it. I mean, you know, you substitute Texas and the Rio Grande for this is like the same story all of a sudden. Mm. Like we, we've heard this before. Mm. People are not manufacturing in China for low cost. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're manufacturing in China for high quality actually, mm-hmm. and for scale. Mm. Okay. In Shenzhen, you know, there's very few places in the world where you can actually manufacture a product and make a million units a day at scale, at a high level of quality, like the iPhone, right? Mm. The pool of industrial engineers, suppliers, the logistics facilities, that's why Apple is doing it in China. You know, they would go somewhere else if it was just about cost. Sure, sure. Yeah, very interesting. All right, Lucas, uh, let's take a short break. And I want to come back then and get into the real meat and potatoes of this, which is the stocks. But let's take a first a real quick break and uh, give our, a chance from our sponsors to be heard. If you are a premium subscriber, do not touch the dial. You will not get a break. And to become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. Remember, you can also sign up for the premium subscription at our Substack, contrarianpod.substack.com. Same benefits, same prices, same great deal, contrarianpod.substack.com. Do so today and hear from me 
every weekday morning to discuss the outlook for markets for that trading day. Check it out, contrarianpod.substack.com. Three ideas for you that okay. directly okay, relate to the, the whole inflation, deflation situation and what's happening in Russia. Sure, well, look, let's hear them then. Yeah, so look, two companies that are affected by the rise in interest rates and have really been beaten down over the last 12 months are Stone and Seguro. And so this is a ticker S-T-N-E, and the other one's P-A-G-S. And these are both Brazilian fintech companies, but really they are credit card merchant acquirers. So their main sort of business is they go out to a merchant and they say, look, we can give you this credit card processing terminal. You can start accepting credit cards, and we have a relatively low cost for doing that. Brazil is a fairly oligopolistic market. There's kind of five big banks. For many years, there was a duopoly of credit card companies, uh, Ciela and uh, Rida. Uh, they were very high priced. You know, both the terminals were high priced. The processing fees were high. The banks held on to your money for a long time. It was, it was not a pleasant environment to work in. There was deregulation that happened six or seven years ago. Stone, Paxaguro are created. They have a lower cost model. They basically price at a lower price. They go to all these merchants that previously don't have a credit card processor. And they say, hey, get our, um, you know, use our terminals. And that's, that's the basic business, right? So every time someone swipes a credit card, they, they, they take a small cut. Now, they, these, these companies have a substantial working capital requirement, which they need to finance somehow. And they generally finance it through issuing debt. And again, Paxiguro is different from Stone, and, and there's a lot of nuance between them. But what has happened in Brazil is interest rates went from 275 to 1175. Hmm. And there's probably going to be another 100 basis point uh, increase in the short-term rate later this year. Because inflation has taken off and the bank has been very aggressive. Uh, the short-term rate is called Selic in Brazil. And so this has really put a strain on their margins, right? Because their financing costs have exploded, margins have shrunk, and it takes time to pass those additional costs onto merchants. Now, both Seguro and Stone are trying to build a more complete ecosystem. They have, you know, Stone has a division called Links, where they have apps and software they sell to merchants. It's very similar to Square. Square mm -hmm. has specific software for you know, a coffee shop or a merchant who has inventory management, et cetera. So they're doing a very similar business. They have a credit business where they are lending money against receivables. And Stone, in particular, made a bit of a boo-boo doing that last year. Uh, specifically, there was a new credit receivables registry that the central bank has set up. And the idea being that you can lend securely against receivables. Well, it turned out the, the system didn't work really well and the merchant could pledge the same receivable to multiple people. Hmm. So a lot of uncollectible debt. So wow. they stopped that. There's, there's other things going on. So there's a more complex story. They're also getting in some deposits because they, they effectively have like a banking product uh, what you have to remember is, you know, Brazil is a developing economy. A lot of merchants do not have um, credit card processing capabilities, and a lot of people don't have bank accounts. Mm -hmm. So there's an enormous opportunity for growth 
and for digitalization of payments in those countries. And if you look at the market share data, um, you know, the, the two kind of big incumbents, uh, Ciela and Rita, are donating market share, to, to say it politely, to Stone and Seguro. And the market itself is growing. So the top lines for these companies are growing 99%, 95% year over year. So there's tremendous growth there. And they are profitable. They're cash flow kind of positive. There's many moving parts. But the big bet is, you know, we can talk about all the nuances and how, diff- and how PAG is different from Stone. But they're both down, you know, 85%, basically year over year. And the, the big bet is that Brazil turns around, right? The inflation moderates and the, the central bank can actually cut interest rates. And what you have to remember is that last the, the last cutting cycle took rates down to 275, which is the lowest they've been in Brazil for, for, for decades. So imagine, you know, inflation moderates, 12 months from now, the central bank can actually begin cutting interest rates. And, you know, instead of being at 12 or 13% interest rates, they go to six. It's, it's not inconceivable. And everyone's, yeah, you know, no one, no one seems to be thinking about that. And so if, if they go to 6%, then suddenly the reverse will begin happening. The financing costs for, for these companies are going to go down. And it will take a little bit of time, a few quarters, for that to be passed on to merchants. Mm. And so these were stocks that were you know, in their 50s, 60s, 70s. So in, in Stone case, I think it peaked in the low 90s. Um, and then it fell into at eight, it was an $8 stock three weeks ago. And I think it's around $14 today because, um, you know, they reported earnings last week and they were not horrible and they didn't declare bankruptcy as some people were predicting. They said they didn't, they don't need any additional capital and, you know, top line grew 97%. Hmm. So that's, yeah. that's another thing to look at. Uh, it's, it's beaten down, reasonably well-managed. Uh, they're, they're gaining scale. To bet on Brazil, I think you know probably half of their return here is just to bet on the macro in Brazil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was, it's interesting if you look at the chart. Yeah, over the last year, these two stocks are down 60, 70, 80 yeah. percent. Um, you know, Stone is down almost eighty, yeah. and Pags is down sixty. But over the since the Russian invasion, these last three weeks, they've all they've bounced. Well, they, fact, they, was, they, they bounced because uh, Stone had you know the earnings last Thursday. I see. Close. And they were not terrible. Right. And then Pag Seguro is in a very similar business, so it kind of moves very much in tandem with it. So huh. um, you know, Stone is up, I think, fifty or sixty percent from its low, uh, you know, two and a half weeks ago. And by the way, yeah. full disclosure: we have a position. Everything we talk about, we file thirteen Fs. You know, sure, go through sure. whale wisdom, whatever. See it. Um, yeah, talking yeah. my book here fully. So yeah, well, that's fine. I mean, that's <laughs> we wouldn't expect any different. So, so this, if I understand this correctly, these businesses are basically sounds sounds like a cross between PayPal and Square um, or Stripe. Like yeah, I, yeah. So, so I would say they're closer to more like a global payments. Okay. Or FIS plus Stripe kind of graph oh, on see. top of that. Yes. Okay. Okay. So why haven't the uh, haven't the other I guess it's just such a big market and so fragmented that that's why the bigger players haven't haven't expanded into this space. That, that... Well, it's Brazil, right? So there, yeah. there's it's it's a different market, and the payments business is huge outside of Brazil. If you're if you're PayPal or Square, there's plenty other you know. Right. There's a lot of wood to chop out there. Right. Um, going to Brazil that you don't know, and there are already competitors there. 
Mm. You know, I don't know what Square would add by going to to Brazil at this point. Right, right. Or if so, they could probably do it through an acquisition. But um, and here you go. There's some candidates. But and now, how about the the capital structure and the fact that they do have to keep hitting, hitting the capital markets for to get more debt? Is that a concern at some point or, or not yet? They're they're still okay. No, it, it's it's largely working capital effectively. So cool. I I don't, I I don't think it's a it's a big big concern. They're, Very they're interesting. Well managed companies. Um, uh huh. And how much of it is a bit? I mean, Brazil is a it's an interesting place. I mean, I've been there. I don't know if you have, but it's um, yeah. I was there in February. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a nice place. Parts of it, but the, but there are issues, um, yep. political and otherwise. Um, and you know, it's one of these places where just when you think it's it's coming back, and Argentina's like this too. When <laughs> when you think they're they're due for to really enter the next stage of growth, they kind of do, seem to fall apart. Um, and that was the and case. There's a presidential when I was there, election coming up later this year. Oh, they do, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and how many of their former presidents are in jail? <laughs> well, so believe it or not, the, one of the presidents is out of jail and he's the, the, the front runner now. Is that Lula? The, the... Yeah, Lula is the front runner. I mean, uh-huh. Unless yeah, right. the polls are totally wrong, Lula will be the, the president. That's wild. That is, yeah, only in, in Brazil, but rather Latin America. But anyway, how, how much concern is that? And then you also have, when you talk about the macro picture, I mean, Brazil is a commodity exporter and China is probably their biggest client, I would assume. And so if China slows down, we have all these real estate issues in China, blah, blah, blah. Then with that, how much of a concern is that? Do you even look at that as a, as a stock? No, I, I do look at that. I mean, look, yeah. Brazil is effectively in a recession right now. Yeah. Um, the market's always forward looking. So all the concerns you're talking about are in stock prices already. If you look at, you know, Vale, right? The, mm. the, the major iron ore exporter from Brazil, the stock price fell substantially last year and started rebounding this year. So certainly Brazil is levered to global commodity prices, to agricultural prices, and all of those, you know, for reasons that we talked about earlier, are on the upswing in, yeah. in the current environment. Now, it doesn't mean there are going to be, I don't think we're returning to the kind of, you know, early 2000s like we had, where China was building everything like crazy. But again, they, they have great reserves at relatively low costs, and, and they should do okay uh, over time. You know, Bra- Brazilians, the, the Brazilians I spoke to, because I was in Brazil last month, were overall quite pessimistic about the choice of presidential candidates. You know, it was a, it was a crook and a psychopath. Those were the mm-hmm. two choices. Um, but I, I think, you know, they will m- muddle through it. Uh, and if you look at the stock market in Brazil, you know, it's gone nowhere for 10 years. Yeah. So again, we're not asking for a lot here. We're, yeah. we're not we're not pricing in a lot. Mm. I'm just saying this doesn't fall apart to some kind of death spiral and and things kind of moderate a little bit and inflation comes down a bit. Hmm. And very cool. Brazil structurally has been improving its macroeconomic governance, and that's why interest rates have come down to you know 275 in the last cutting cycle. And you look at you know, again the short term rates. Every cutting cycle, they've gone lower and lower and lower. So. That, that's a pattern you've also seen in you know, most of the developed world, right? Where every time there's a cutting cycle, we go to new lows uh, of interest rates. That's right. Yeah, it's certainly been the case here in the US with the Fed. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. Okay, cool. And what's the third idea that you have? Yeah, so, you know, since... Uh, Ukraine has been invaded. One may look for companies that have been really hurt by this. 
And I'll give you sort of two ideas on this again, one for, for the real risk lovers and one for people that are a little more risk averse. Um, the real risk lovers should look at a company called EPAM, which is an IT software business, which they, they basically work on IT software projects. And the majority of their workforce is in Eastern Europe, including Ukraine and Russia and, and Belarus and Poland and the other Baltic Latin states. Um, they withdrew guidance, um, you know, and prior to, prior to the invasion, you know, there's kind of three businesses that are quite similar, Andava, Globant, and EPAM, and EPAM being the largest one of those. They traded routinely at 70 to 80 times earnings. So very, very rich. Right? And there, there's reasons for that. They were very nice businesses and they were scaling and incremental margins were very strong. They don't need capital, many good reasons. But now EPAM, you know, fell at some point over 80% on, on account of the Russian invasion. I mean, it, it's been falling before because in kind of high price, high valuation growth stocks have been getting slammed this year. Then comes the extra punch of Ukraine. They withdraw guidance, the stock falls 70%. So that's that's your opportunity. If you think that they will able they, they'll be able to move a lot of their people into you know safer areas, so Western Ukraine, potentially Poland, um, the other states, and rebuild the business, um, then then you know it's the cheapest effectively it's ever been since the IPO. Mm, wow. them and uh, you know trades in the U.S. You're, you're not going to get sanctioned. You're not going to get. Uh, Repay, you know, you're not going to get your assets stripped by the Russian government or something. Yeah, yeah. In fact, you may get a good good deals if the U.S. government or the U.S. companies um, are able to lend to you. Maybe it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, they, they're they're you know they have a great reputation. Um, mm-hmm. Clearly, you know, there are going to be delays in the projects they're doing, um, but it's not like everyone just fires them tomorrow because there's a delay. I think people understand what's happening and it's not like so easy that like you, you have a IT project and in the middle of that, you, you can hire someone else to do it. It's, it's, it's a pretty oh, yeah. sticky business in that sense. Yeah, I, I know. So, so basically so they provide the engineering prowess, like the, the people, the programmers. And yeah, stuff that, like that's that. the simplest way, way to think yeah. about it. Um, and again, you know, you can hire top talent in Ukraine for much less. You can hire it. Sure. Well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny. I I actually know this because it's interesting how many Western companies, like the company I work for, Seeking Alpha, they're Israeli, but they had a big um, had a big uh, a presence in 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 Ukraine, yeah. and very many uh, developers there. I think seventy. Um, last I heard, they were all accounted for, thankfully. But um, yeah, but it's just gosh. Um, yeah, another you know another kind of company that many people know about, Koifin. Uh, which yeah, is yeah. Kind of alternative charts. Uh, charts and, and data. Um, most of their people are actually in Ukraine. Wow. How do these com- companies deal with this with, without having their business disrupted? Well, uh, you know, not all of Ukraine is, is, is fighting, right? So there, there's... True. I was just speaking earlier to phone as, as we were talking. I was changing messages with people in, in Kiev right now. Wow. So life goes on. I mean... Certainly, it's terrible what's happening, but but life continues to go on. And, you know, you look at Zelensky, Zelensky is is announcing tax reform in the middle of all this to help Ukrainian businesses simplify bureaucracy. So, you know, they are are continuing to fight and they're continuing to educate children and they're even talking about how they're going to plant crops. 
you know, between right. Altura, but between between fighting grounds. I mean, okay. Since you are from, uh, you know, a neighboring country, and and you obviously are pretty educated on this, um, what are your views on on the the potential end game there in, in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if there's a end game. I I, I unfortunately I think this kind of grinds to a stalemate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no one's going to concede. And the US and allies probably keep sending in supplies and munitions for quite a while. Um, and, and the Russians, you know, can't really take much territory, but they can continue bombing cities once in a while. And we go into this kind of prolonged stalemate. I think, unfortunately, that's, that's uh, one of the likely outcomes here. I don't see the US really getting involved militarily um for various reasons i don't think there's a public appetite for that frankly um and i don't see you know how russia can really win a decisive victory either um you know poland you know poland was occupied by foreign powers and actually didn't exist as a country for 123 years and it kept fighting like ongoing uprisings and, and all of them, you know, totally, I mean, seemingly pointless and bloodly suppressed and thousand dying and people just like keep fighting. So the, the mentality, you know, in Poland and I think largely in Ukraine is that even if, if it doesn't make sense to fight, you just have to keep fighting. It's like you never capitulate uh, under any circumstances and keep fighting. So I don't see how Russia can hope to hold Ukraine in any meaningful sense. Um, you know, the U.S. tried to hold Afghanistan for quite a while. And, and, you know, and yeah, you, you know how well that worked out. So yeah. Ukraine yeah. is a different story, but the, the Taliban didn't have uh, modern weapons that were supplied to them by the West all the time. So right. I, I don't see how Russia wins in a sense of, of holding territory. And at the same time, I don't see how they're going to concede at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is from all the reports I see, there is quite a bit of support in Russia for this mm-hmm. special military military mm-hmm. operation, as it's called, because it's not a war, obviously, in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sanctions, while they hurt people and they hurt economies, um, I don't know of a country that's ever changed its political course really in a meaningful way because of sanctions. I could argue South Africa, maybe, but apartheid. Perhaps, yes, perhaps that's, that's part of it. Gosh, yeah. But what you're what you're describing actually has has kind of been going on in eastern Ukraine for five or eight years, right? I mean, in that in that yeah. whole region. So yeah. it certainly wouldn't be unprecedented. Do you think there's any chance that they they pull the kind of try to do a Grozny here and just level the place like they did in Chechnya or the Russians? Or? Well, they they try, mm-hmm. but you know, um, it's it's a bigger place. It's much yeah. bigger. Kiev itself is larger than New York City in terms of land mass, the space oh, it takes up. Um, yeah, I think they're going to keep firing and mm-hmm. the Ukrainians are going to keep counterattacking. And, you right. know, just, just today there was a report they retook a certain neighborhood. So yeah, I we're pushing that. it back. So I, I'm, not a, I'm not on the ground. I'm not a mm-hmm. military expert. Um, you know, if, if, this is the, the, if this is the war going well for Russia, I would hate to see what, it, what mm-hmm. going badly would mean yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for that that segue. Um, I realize that has nothing really to do with the 
economics or, or investing, although it kind of does, I guess. You know, yeah. You look, so I, I told you I have EPAM for the real risk mm-hmm. lovers. Yeah. And yeah. I have one more for the, the, the less risk lover. Tell people. me. And that would be simply by the, the Warsaw stock market. Oh, right. And you can buy the Warsaw. Is there, an e, is there an ETF? Yes, there is. It's EPOL, E P O L. Okay. And you know the liquidity isn't the greatest in the world, but you know trades two or three hundred thousand shares a day. Um, I think the outstanding shares are like two hundred seventy million. Last I checked, um, you know, PE of the market is ten ish, um, and you know you're not going to get expropriated, you're not going to get sanctioned. The GDP keeps growing. They just got another million people, uh, you know, <laughs> from from immigrants. And I think, you know, one thing to think about and to really understand is that Ukrainian immigrants in Poland, even though it is mainly women and children, you know, they are, they're not going to sit in, you know, camps and and kind of wait hopelessly for handouts. Like they're already organizing kindergartens and Ukrainian uh, elementary schools and, you know, looking for jobs and the Polish government issued all of them. Um, like social, the equivalent of a social security mm-hmm. number, so you can legally work, and many of them speak some Polish. Uh, so you know th- they're going to be very quickly productive members of society, I think, mm-hmm. uh, and, and contribute in one way or another. Mm, very interesting. Yeah, uh, and here too, the stock the stock sold off after the invasion, but have since rebounded. I guess March seventh was the bottom here for most of these things. Yes, so so a lot of that has to do with currency as well, right? So there was quite it's a bit of right? Polish yeah. currency, yeah. So the Polish currency at its weakest fell about fifteen percent from the pre-invasion level, uh, and the Polish bank is also the, the Polish central bank is quite hawkish. Okay. Um, so they've they've raised interest rates, and you know, Poland is fighting inflation, um, but is doing reasonably well. Um, and again, the economy, I think, is not going to collapse. And short of a nuclear attack wiping out Poland, I think you know you're kind of buying at, at depressed prices now, hmm. and and there's some bounce to be had if things normalize. Cool. A couple of years ago, I as I edited this book about um, Poland being the next economic kind of superpower. It was written by a Polish economist, and speaking talk about speak, talking your book, but it was but it was interesting, yeah. and um, yeah, and he had a lot of really interesting points about this, and and. You know, look, it's it's a it's a growing economy, right, right in the heart of Europe, and yeah, with the demographics and, and things, and and um, it seems like it could be in, in a really good position. Yeah, and I, I think one thing that's not maybe well known in the West is the energy policy that Poland has mm. pursued. Um, you know, so if you look at wholesale energy prices, um, you know, they are roughly one third of what they are in Germany or other other you know. Western European countries, because Poland never really got on board with the whole green movement, right? You know, and, and they, the European Union was always poo-pooing them, like how could how can you pollute and you're doing these terrible things, and you know, and and Poland was again very kind of anti-Russia in terms of getting supplies from Russia, so there's a, a natural gas pipeline that's going to be coming from uh, Norway to Poland. It's almost finished. They're expecting that to open in. August, September, and they have a LNG import terminal. And between those two things, Poland's actually got to be energy, you know, sufficient, independent from a gas perspective, mm. uh, and will not need to import from, mm. from Russia. 
That's and then you have that, and you know, imagine you're a, you're a German company, right? You're doing manufacturing. And energy prices in Germany are three times what they are in Poland. And by the way, the, the corporate tax is also half in hmm. Poland, what it is in Germany. So, so you see, you know, you see what happens, right? All the auto parts suppliers, for, and this is not a new trend, for years they've been building factories in Poland. And there are highways, you know, 100 miles and goes from Poland, goes to the German factory for assembly. That kind of trend is likely to continue because, again, mm. wages are lower in Poland. I would say the government is a little bit more pro-business. Mm-hmm. Energy prices are meaningful, meaningfully lower. Um, so you can, you can kind of see that process continuing. Mm. I don't expect Poland to be some kind of superpower, but, um, you know, the, there, there's no reason why they can't uh, take market share from these kinds of jobs, you know, middle tier, if you will, um, from, from Western Europe. Mm. And it's not yeah, just... No it's not just car parts, you know, it's, it's aerospace. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. In the southeastern part of Poland, um, there's quite a bit of concentration of aerospace manufacturers. And again, Western companies like Lufthansa has, mm-hmm. a, has a big operation there. So Lufthansa, the airline, most of their income actually comes from non-airline operations. Hmm. They have a they have a maintenance division. They have a catering business. They have other things. Wow. Um, so Lufthansa Technique, which is their maintenance operation, where they service airplanes and service jet engines and so on, they have an operation there. MTUI Aero, which is a German company, again makes many things, but many engine parts. They make some of those in Poland. So those kinds of things, you know, are are, are continuing. Mm-hmm. And then the, there's an airport in that area in the city called Zeszów. That's become, you know, a, a semi, semi forward operating base for NATO and other people yeah. that are, you know, there, there's, there, we're tech, we're not in Russian airspace, but everyone, there's so many planes now flying around there, looking at what's happening in Russia. It's become this little military outpost almost. Wow. Interesting. Are there any growth industries that may, maybe that people might be able to, or even individual companies that people might be able to get in on the ground floor? And Sure. In, in Poland? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a couple that are, that are worth looking at. The index itself, if you look at the, the index, it's dominated. Number one, there's a, a big Polish bank. Mm-hmm. And the second one is a copper producing company. It actually has mm-hmm. big operations in, I believe, Canada and Chile. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you, if, you, if you like copper, it's the second largest constituent of the index. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have companies like Dino Polska, which is a, uh, it's a retailer, but they target smaller towns. It's smaller stores, um, you know, and there, there's quite a bit of growth still potential in, in those, those areas. There is CD Project, which is a game developer. Yeah. Um, the Hexer is for their, their most well-known you know, catalog item. Um, there's other things, you know, there, there's a recycling business um, that, that's interesting. Because again, Poland is a small market. You might think recycling is a competitive business, but it turns out um, it's, it's not in Poland. Mm. There's some recycling companies. Uh, I don't want to give you the whole name because they're, they're not that liquid. Um, mm. But there, there are a number of thing, things of that nature. There's a flooring company called Decora, mm. uh, which, again, doesn't look particularly expensive. Again, Poland's a big exporter of furniture. It's one of the largest manufacturers mm. in Europe. So flooring, furniture, those kind of things uh, you know, make a lot of sense given where Poland is and the, the wage structure, if you will. Yeah. And a lot of these that, have pink sheets. I'm just looking now. Sorry? 
a lot of these have pink sheets. Uh, Dino Polska is DNOPY. Yeah, yeah. Again, well, probably not very liquid, but yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't buy the pink sheets. I'll probably go direct and follow. Yeah, sure. Yeah, which most people can do now. Yes. Very um, cool. Yeah, they're, they're reasonably well-known company. There are some. There's some coal mining companies. Uh, there's an ongoing project in Poland for the utility companies to pool their so-called dirty assets into one mm. company, right? So then. They, they would all have this one company, which is the dirty company, and they would just have contracts with it. And then every utility would say, well, we're, we're green, we're, we're clean. And so and the reason it has to do with financing, right? It's becoming harder and harder to finance um, your operations if you yeah. have any kind of coal assets. So, so that, that's happening now. There's a big project um, occurring. Um, but there are some coal miners as well in Poland, which, again, just like sort of miners in in west virginia were left for dead because mm. we're not competitive and suddenly with coal prices where they are you know they, they're suddenly printing money hmm. very interesting all right lucas tomitsky <laughs> thank you so much did i say it right yeah oh, thank God. Uh, yeah thanks thanks so much for joining um in closing maybe tell us how we can find out more about you and your company i know you have a website sure uh, yeah, rt uh, capital so, you know, I, I run a fund. Um, it's myself, an analyst and a CFO. We're based in Austin, Texas. The firm's name is LRT Capital Management. If you just search in Google LRT Capital, you will find our website, which I think has a ton of information, including monthly letters. And we're quite open about what we do and what we own. And we crossed $100 million under management uh, last year. So we filed our first 13F this year. Um, so, That's yeah, huge. so you can... You can look us look us up and see everything we own and, and what we're doing. Oh, that's huge! Yeah, because last time I spoke to you, you guys were, were literally just starting out. I think you just had friends and family money back in early 2020, late 2019, if, if memory serves. Um, not quite starting out, but okay. but we were fairly new in, in the game in the U.S. Yeah. I, I'd lived in Hong Kong prior to returning to the U.S. So yeah, I remember shortly yeah. after that. Yeah. Yeah, we got into that in the last time, and um, yeah, Ella, but you're not on the social media. You used to, didn't you used to be? No, I'm on Twitter. I'm you on are Twitter. on Twitter. That's oh, how right. I contacted you. That's how we set up this whole interview. No, we didn't. <laughs> it was over email, wasn't it? No. It was, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Lucas, <laughs> yeah, there you are. Duh. At Tomitsky. Okay, great. What an idiot. Okay. I'm talking about me. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, wow. Where's that picture? That does not look like that could be anywhere. Is that, that picture? Yeah. Uh, that is uh, from my recent uh, vacation in Argentina. That's Argentina. Wow. That's, okay. uh, that's Patagonia. That's Punto nice. Panoramico in wow. Ariloche, Argentina. Beautiful. That's incredible. Cool. And definitely the place to go, you know, when it's, when it's winter in the Northern hemisphere, it's summer there. Right. Right. Don't do it the other way around. You will probably freeze. Yeah. Great, man. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the Contrarian Investor Podcast. Thank you all for listening. And we would look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. 
The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.